Section 6, Compensation, Privileges, and Restrictions on Holding Civil Office. Clause 1, Compensation and Legal Protection. The Senators and Representatives shall receive a compensation for their services, to be ascertained by law, and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. They shall in all cases, except treason, felony and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and in going to and returning from the same, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. Senators and representatives set their own compensation. Under the 27th Amendment, any change in their compensation will not take effect until after the next congressional election. Paying senators and representatives out of the federal treasury was a departure from the practice under the Articles of Confederation, where they were paid by the state in which they were elected. Members of both houses have certain privileges, based on those enjoyed by the members of the British Parliament. Members attending, going to or returning from either house are privileged from arrest, except for treason, felony or breach of the peace. One may not sue a senator or representative for slander occurring during congressional debate, nor may speech by a member of Congress during a congressional session be the basis for criminal prosecution. The latter was affirmed when Mike Grabble published over 4,000 pages of the Pentagon Papers in the Congressional Record, which might have otherwise been a criminal offense. This clause has also been interpreted in Grabble v. United States, 1972, to provide protection to aides and staff of sitting members of Congress, so long as their activities relate to legislative matters. Clause 2, Independence from the Executive. No senator or representative shall, during the time for which he was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which shall have been created, or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time, and no person holding any office under the United States, shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. Senators and representatives may not simultaneously serve in Congress and hold a position in the executive branch. This restriction is meant to protect legislative independence by preventing the president from using patronage to buy votes in Congress. It is a major difference from the political system in the British Parliament, where cabinet ministers are required to be members of Parliament. Furthermore, senators and representatives cannot resign to take newly created or higher-paying political positions, rather, they must wait until the conclusion of the term for which they were elected. If Congress increases the salary of a particular officer, it may later reduce that salary to permit an individual to resign from Congress and take that position, known as the Saxby fix. The effects of the clause were discussed in 1937, when Senator Hugo Black was appointed an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court with some time left in his Senate term. Just prior to the appointment, Congress had increased the pension available to justices retiring at the age of 70. It was therefore suggested by some that the office's emolument had been increased during Black's senatorial term, and that therefore Black could not take office as a justice. The response, however, was that Black was 51 years old, and would not receive the increased pension until at least 19 years later, long after his Senate term had expired. Section 7, Bills. Clause 1, Bills of Revenue. All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. This establishes the method for making acts of Congress that involve taxation. Accordingly, any bill may originate in either House of Congress, except for a revenue bill, which may originate only in the House of Representatives. In practice, the Senate sometimes circumvents this requirement by substituting the text of a revenue bill previously passed by the House with a substitute text. Either House may amend any bill, including revenue and appropriation bills. This clause of the U.S. Constitution stemmed from an English parliamentary practice that all money bills must have their first reading in the House of Commons. 
This practice was intended to ensure that the power of the purse is possessed by the legislative body most responsive to the people, although the English practice was modified in America by allowing the Senate to amend these bills. The clause was part of the great compromise between small and large states, the large states were unhappy with the lopsided power of small states in the Senate, and so the clause theoretically offsets the unrepresentative nature of the Senate, and compensates the large states for allowing equal voting rights to senators from small states. Clause 2, from bill to law. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate, shall, before it become a law, be presented to the President of the United States, if he approve he shall sign it, but if not he shall return it, with his objections to that House in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal, and proceed to reconsider it. If after such reconsideration two-thirds of that House shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent, together with the objections, to the other House, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered and if approved by two-thirds of that house, it shall become a law. But in all such cases the votes of both houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of the persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered on the journal of each house, respectively. If any bill shall not be returned by the President within ten days, Sundays accepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be a law, in like manner as if he had signed it, unless the Congress by their adjournment prevent its return, in which case it shall not be a law. This clause is known as the presentment clause. Before a bill becomes law, it must be presented to the president, who has ten days, excluding Sundays, to act upon it. If the president signs the bill, it becomes law. However, to propose a constitutional amendment, two-thirds of both houses may submit it to the states for the ratification, without any consideration by the president, as prescribed in Article 4. If he disapproves of the bill, he must return it to the house in which it originated together with his objections. This procedure has become known as the veto, although that particular word does not appear in the text of Article 1. The bill does not then become law unless both houses, by two-thirds votes, override the veto. In overriding a veto, the votes of both houses must be done by yeas and nays, and the names of the persons voting for and against the bill must be recorded. If the president neither signs nor returns the bill within the 10-day limit, the bill becomes law, unless the Congress has adjourned in the meantime, thereby preventing the President from returning the bill to the House in which it originated. In the latter case, the President, by taking no action on the bill towards the end of a session, exercises a pocket veto, which Congress may not override. In the former case, where the President allows a bill to become law unsigned, there is no common name for the practice, but recent scholarship has termed it a default enactment. What exactly constitutes an adjournment for the purposes of the pocket veto has been unclear. In the pocket veto case, 1929, the Supreme Court held that the determinative question in reference to an adjournment is not whether it is a final adjournment of Congress or an interim adjournment, such as an adjournment of the first session, but whether it is one that prevents the President from returning the bill to the House in which it originated within the time allowed. Since neither House of Congress was in session, the President could not return the bill to one of them, thereby permitting the use of the pocket veto. In Wright v. United States, 1938, however, the court ruled that adjournments of one house only did not constitute an adjournment of Congress required for a pocket veto. In such cases, the secretary or clerk of the house in question was ruled competent to receive the bill. Some presidents have made very extensive use of the veto, while others have not used it at all. Grover Cleveland, for instance, vetoed over 400 bills during his first term in office. Congress overrode only two of those vetoes. Meanwhile, seven presidents have never used the veto power. There have been 2,560 vetoes, including pocket vetoes. In 1996, Congress passed the Line Item Veto Act, 
which permitted the president, at the time of the signing of the bill, to rescind certain expenditures. The Congress could disapprove the cancellation and reinstate the funds. The president could veto the disapproval, but the Congress, by a two-thirds vote in each house, could override the veto. In the case Clinton v. City of New York, the Supreme Court found the line-item veto act unconstitutional because it violated the presentment clause. First, the procedure delegated legislative powers to the president, thereby violating the non-delegation doctrine. Second, the procedure violated the terms of Section 7, which state, if he approve, he shall sign it, but if not he shall return it. Thus, the president may sign the bill, veto it, or do nothing, but he may not amend the bill and then sign it. Clause 3, Resolutions. Every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and House of Representatives may be necessary, except on a question of adjournment, shall be presented to the President of the United States, and before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him, or being disapproved by him, shall be repassed by two-thirds of the Senate and House of Representatives, according to the rules and limitations prescribed in the case of a bill. Every order, resolution, or vote that must be passed by both houses, except on a question of adjournment, must also be presented to the President before taking effect, just as with bills that become law. Section 8. Powers of Congress. Enumerated Powers. Congress's legislative powers are enumerated in Section 8. Its 18 clauses are, in order. The Congress shall have power. To lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To borrow money on the credit of the United States. To regulate commerce with foreign nations, and among the several states, and with the Indian tribes. To establish a uniform rule of naturalization, and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. To coin money, regulate the value thereof, and a foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. To provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. To establish post offices and post roads. To promote the progress of science and useful arts, by securing for limited times to authors and vendors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. To constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. To define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and offenses against the law of nations. To declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. To raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. To provide and maintain a navy. To make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. To provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. To provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining, the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively, the appointment of the officers, and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever, over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states, and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States, and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be, for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. Many powers of Congress have been granted under a broad interpretation of Article 1, Section 8. Most notably, Clauses 1, 
the General Welfare or Taxing and Spending Clause, 3, the Commerce Clause, and 18, the Necessary and Proper Clause, have been deemed to grant expansive powers to Congress. These three clauses have been interpreted so broadly that the federal government of the United States exercises many powers that are not expressly delegated to it by the states under the Constitution. Some point to the various social programs of the American welfare state as a prime example, and not all agree with this broad interpretation. James Madison, who wrote much of the Constitution, asserted that Congress could not exercise powers unless they were expressly granted in the Constitution. While he was President of the United States, Madison vetoed the Federal Public Works Bill of 1817, calling it unconstitutional, since in his view the federal government did not have the authority to build infrastructure. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.